Welcome to another Dragonlance Saga review episode. It is Bakukul Fears Wealth the 21st. My name is Adam, and today I'm going to give you my review, my spoiler review, of Chosen of the Gods by Chris Pearson. Now, I will be spoiling this story, so if you don't want to know about it, go read the book, then come back and watch this after the fact. You're going to want to uh, just experience this on your own, rather than having someone spoil it for you, because it's a great novel. All right. Now, this is just my opinion, so if yours differs, share your thoughts. If you're joining live, welcome, thank you. And if you're watching this after the fact, just put it in the comments and we'll have a little bit of a back and forth about it and we'll have a little bit of fun. I would like to remind you, um, <laughs> well, I would like to thank the members of this YouTube channel and invite you to consider becoming a member by visiting the links in the description below and remind you that you can always pick up Dragonlance Gaming Materials using my affiliate links. All right, so the way these things work is I'm going to give you my pre-written review and then just sort of riff on anything that you guys have popped up. I have uh, one of the uh, YouTube members sent me an email list because they can't join the live chat, and so I'm going to bounce some of those thoughts and questions as well. And let's just have a little bit of fun. It's Friday. I got nothing else going. I'm going to got a review after this on a different channel, but right now I got nothing else to do, and <laughs> that's why I'm starting it early. All right, so uh, Jonathan Race, thanks for tuning in. And uh, one shot of the Fall of Istar would be dope. That'd be a great game. Oh, man. Cool. All right. Let's get into it. So, the story picks up with the first son of Paladine, Kurnos. This is an ambitious man who has found himself in the service of his god, and in that role he found contentment. He is summoned before the king priest Simeon IV, with Alista, the first daughter of Paladine, and Lorlon, emissary to Sevenesty. They're told by the king priest that he had a visit, uh, a vision, basically a visitation by Paladine in a dream, and it told him to name his successor as he would be called to his god's side soon. Due to this vision, he is named Kurnos, his successor. The contentment that was within Kurnos nearly immediately fled, and his ambition once again crept in. As he was contemplating this honor, he spied a dark-robed figure, which scared him, but upon turning away and turning back, the figure was gone. This is all concurrently happening, as a plague named the Longasai is running rampant throughout Ancelon. We're introduced to a young man named Cathan Marsevrin, who's lost many of his family to the plague and turned against Paladine because of it. He runs away and joins a bandit group, led by the former Baron of Lucille Vale, named Tavar. Now, he's training these wayward children and young adults how to fight and how to raid. They assault the Reverend's son, Blavian, and Cathan literally kicks the shit out of him. He's berated and punished for it, but the hatred for his faith due to his lost family runs hot within him. They steal the money that he was carrying, and as word gets back to the king priest, Kurnos suggests sending the army to deal with the bandits. Alista and Lorlon both condemn the act of attacking their own populace with their military and instead trying to deal with them on a more personal level with local authorities. Kurnos is upset and clearly hot-blooded himself. Elista is bothered by the immediate suggestion by Kurnos and goes to sleep worrying about what will happen when he ascends to the king priest. That night, she's visited by a vision of Brother Gendel, a fat monk. Now, this Brother Gendel is a substitute for Fizban, is an avatar of Paladin. So he shows her the Lightbringer, which is a person, not an object, and she knows it is her mission to seek this man out. She immediately tells Lorlon, who together they visit the Fibulium, 
which is an archive of heretical objects as decreed by the king priest. I believe the Fabulium also showed up in the Dark Disciple trilogy when Chemish and Mina went down to the sunken Tower of High Sorcery in Istar, under the Blood Sea of Istar. And uh, it's just interesting to see these connections between not just Chris Pearson and a whole bunch of other works, but also much later to be written and a callback to this novel. So the archive reveals a text with the prophecy of the Lightbringer, and this confirms Alista's mind. She tells the king priest and Kurnos, who is now upset that he will be usurped or passed aside for this new Lightbringer, if Alista is successful in locating him. But the king priest gives her leave to go seek the Lightbringer out. She, tries, uh, she travels all over Salamnia and Istar to no avail until finding a note in her tent from the Lightbringer saying to travel not to Zaxaroth, which was her next position to go to, but rather into the mountains in order to meet him. Now, this is a wonderful start to the story with a ton of backstory and connections to future events, even a throwaway line about chaos roaming the land, referencing the Summer of Chaos. They speak in the ancient dialect with translation in many phrases, and it all serves to immerse you as the reader into this ancient world even more. When it feels very much like the Holy Roman Empire, it also feels relatable, as supposedly holy men and women are flawed, as all humans are. It's a necessary touch of realism to the fantasy that is at the heart of why I love Dragonlance. It constantly pulls on real-world sensibilities in a fantasy, uh, high fantasy environment. And then, while playing Kaz with Kurnos, the king priest has a stroke, and Kurnos hears the voice of what he believes can only be that black-robed figure telling him to let the king priest die, and he will rule. Kurnos ultimately cannot sit by and allow that to happen, so he runs off for aid. The king priest is barely alive and will die shortly, and Kurnos is placed as acting king priest with the voice um, returning. Uh, let's see. It's been some 20-odd years since I read this, I believe, so I'm not absolutely certain I recall all this story, but I want to say that the figure is Fiston Danilus. We'll find out shortly, I guess. Meanwhile, the bandits are moving to attack the city, and after seeing his younger sister with the plague, decides to join the attack and strike back at Paladine. The bandits under Tavar, commander... Uh, under Tavar's commander, joined a larger group commanded by a man named Osirian, a bandit lord. Together, they all took over the city of Govina. There, Cathan killed the governor's captain and took the reverend son Durinan captive, bringing him to Osirian. He's asked for a boon in return and is asked to return to Teol, where his sister was dying from the plague. Osirian sent the entire bandit group under Tavar back as well, and then sends the demands of the king priest to the king priest so that uh, if they send healers and food, then they will retire from the city. If not, then they'll continue to take more cities and hold this city as well. Kurnos was infuriated, but the king priest, while still very ill, insisted not on sending soldiers. This sent Kurnos into a fuming tirade. He ran to his quarters where Fistadanilus, yes, I correctly recalled it, offered him a magical ring with a demon's soul within it. He said that if Kurnos would take the ring, or if he wouldn't take the ring, then someone else would. And if he did decide to take the king, the ring, he could use it to enact whatever decision he would have and the, the demon within would have to just do what he said. 
So Kurnos decides to use it to kill the king priest. So he sends the demon to go attack the king priest, and it caused the king priest another stroke, and yet the king priest still lived on, though his life was literally hanging by a thread. Alista and her knights of Salamnia traveled into the mountains with a massive storm was unleashed, and a flock of wyverns attacked. I don't know if you'd call a group of wyverns or wyverns a flock, a murder, a pack, a group, I don't know, a gaggle. I don't know what you call them, but it was just a bunch of wyverns. Anyway, it, they ended up killing two knights and taking off with Alista. The Lightbringer ended up saving her, and when she awoke, she was in a monastery of Majare. The monks led her to their leader, a young man named Belinda's. Belinda's is incredibly... Now, here's something I need to bring up. They reference Belinda's as Belden and Belinda's. I don't know if it's just like... Thomas and Tom, you know what I mean? But it's a little, it's a little strange that you reference the same character two different ways, seemingly randomly. Like there's no real reason. It's not like you, you meet them formally and it's like, oh, this is Belinda's and you must reference him as Belinda's. And then when you get to know him, he likes people to call him Belden. Nothing like that. It's just like they randomly say the name differently. It was weird. Anyway, so Blindas is incredibly talented with healing, and she gave him the test, confirming that he is, yes, in fact, the Lightbringer. Then they all leave to return to the capital. En route, they come across the bandit group led by Tavar, and Cathan felled the lead knight with a sling. And Blinda heals the lead knight to everyone's shock. Then Cathan sends Beldina, Beldinas, or Belden, uh, to his sister with the plague. He ends up healing her, spending the next few days healing all of the sick in all of Teol. Now, Tavar tells Alista that due to these change of events, he's not going to keep them as prisoners, and he is, in fact, going to let them go. And the bandits swear their faith and loyalty to Belinda's. Alista contacts Lorlon and tells him everything that has transpired, and he's informed of the king priest's ultimate death. Kurinos is ordained the new king priest and immediately sends the equivalent of two battalions to crush the bandits in Teol, knowing full well that Belden and Alista are both there and that they will more than likely be killed in the process. He also decrees that they are both traitors to Istar and banned from the clergy. When Alista hears of this, she is understandably devastated, though she questions whether Kurnos is just or not. After all, she is bringing the Lightbringer to Istar, and he may usurp Kurnos. They all hear of this, and in a last-ditch effort, Belden heals the remaining villagers, and they all ride to Govina to take up with the Syrian after seeing the oncoming army. Vicendanilus is busy trying to get Kurnos to use the ring yet again to kill his enemies, but up till now, Kurnos has refused. The army is giving chase to the bandits who choose to cross a large river, and Belden destroys the bridge. The Knights of Salamnia sacrifice themselves to valiantly face the army themselves, allowing the villagers to flee to safety. This act of self-sacrifice is an anathema to everything that I hold dear. In every case, I choose life, but I cannot help but respect and be moved by it, especially in Dragonlands. Belden destroys the bridge with a massive earthquake, and they all continue en route to Gavina. They arrive as Assyrian is dealing with refugees from everywhere around Istar. He's hearing about Kurnos and the army and realizing everything that he did has now been in vain. 
There would be no suing for peace or aid for the residents as the plague has finally reached Gavina as well, decimating the town, or the city as it were. Then the bandits arrive with Lista and Belden. He immediately surrounded by everyone cheering him, Belden, his reputation preceding him, and he is sent to the little emperor who is dying with a crossbow bolt in his gut after a failed escape attempt. Belden miraculously heals him as he begins to say who he, he uh, he says, who wears the crown rules, in reference to Mycerum, the crown of power, the king priest's legendary crown, um, which went missing in the last king priest war. Lista sees a vision of Belden wearing the Mycerum, then with the lib- little emperor, <laughs> I, I sometimes autocorrect messes up my uh, my damn narrative here. It says Saigon. I don't know what, what that means. Anyway, the, um, sees that she fears she's in fact a traitor to Istar, questioning whether what she's doing is even the right thing. I think this is a sign that Alista is not just a flawed character, but an incredibly relatable character. Um, I'm not a religious person, but my entire family is, and I know definitely that when it comes to uh, making choices based on faith, it's constantly a question of, is, is this just me in my head? Or, or do I really believe that this could happen if I just continue forward with it? Anytime it's a question of faith, you have to jostle between rational thought and your faith thought and belief. And, you know, those things don't always if ever, coincide. So you're really just sort of making decisions based on what you think you're doing the right thing versus knowing that it is, is in fact, the right thing to do. So the king priest, fearing Lorelon was still communicating with Alista, bans him from the capital and sends the demon to murder Alista and Belden, and it kills Reverend's son Durinan as he was telling them about how he hid the mice from away and that how it's in the catacombs below their temple where they are now. Then, guards run in, only to be slaughtered by the demon. Osirian steps up to the demon, and he is also murdered. Alista tries to banish the demon with her holy medallion, which she's successful at, but it kills her in the process as well. This demon is incredibly effective at murdering everyone in sight, effortlessly. This isn't like a role-playing game where you roll dice and you're like, ooh, is it going to hurt? Is it going to hit him? Oh, we died. We didn't do it. No, this thing just comes in and is kicking ass and taking names. Pretty dope. And you don't get a lot of demons in Dragonlance. In my memory, it's this and the the demon prince that Tasselhoff on a stone's throw away faced off against and was sort of acting on the behest of inadvertently. So that those are the only two demons that I can think of at the moment. Let me know in the chat or if you're watching this after the fact in the comments, if you can think of other than those two demons in Dragonlance. Okay, so back to it. Uh, Belden is devastated, obviously, and calls for Cathan. He tells because he's sitting there amongst the carnage of uh, four, five people, literally torn to pieces laying blood and gore everywhere. He's caked in it because he's sitting there holding Alista's head in his lap as he's sitting there just sort of PTSD and shell shock, just like rocking back and forth, not wanting to see anyone. You can imagine the madness that is happening in this guy's head right now. So 
he tells them about the Maesarum, and they plan to retrieve it the following day after the funeral rites. Belden is openly denouncing the king priest to the people of Govina, which is heretical and never done, um, who are supporting his calls to throw down evil once and for all, including Kernus the Usurper, as he's calling him now, and that he, being the light bringer, will be the next king priest. And everyone eats it up because they've seen the miracles he's performed, the travesty uh, that has happened at the behest of Kernos, and they think that, of course, this has to be the new king priest. Everyone's championing him, and Catherine and Belden enter the catacombs to receive the Maesarum. Deep in the catacombs, they eventually arrive at the Maesarum, but it's protected by the undead. While Catherine valiantly stands up against them, they are both overwhelmed and brought to unconsciousness. Catherine wakes to see the spirit of the former would-be king-priest, Padian, who tries to convince Catherine to don the Maesarum himself. He ultimately refuses and brings the Maesarum to the unconscious Belden, surrounded by undead priests. He brings them both out of the catacombs uh, into the tower as the city is under siege. Tavar is doing his best to turn away the Scottish army, but there are simply too many of them. The city will ultimately fall when he's called to Belden's chamber. He arrives to see Belden unconscious and Cathan unable to wake him. Tavar tries to take the Maesrum in order to help with the war effort, but Cathan abjectly refuses, almost killing him in the process, and he ends up returning to the wall. Cathan sees the ghost priest again and demands that he wakes Belden now that it's been three full days. Reluctantly, this ghost priest does, and Belden begins. Um, brings Cathan to the top of the Tower of Gavina. At the top, he uses his magic to bring down the city walls, yeah, seemingly against the people that are trying to protect him, thereby allowing the army to enter the city. While Belden was out, Kurnos was compelled to send the demon after Belden again and finally relents. The demon arrives as Belden is about to be crowned king-priest by Cathan at the top of that tower during the battle, and as soon as that crown is put on his head, holy light spills out all across the city, healing every wounded, regardless of the side that they're on, and ultimately destroying the demon, sending it back to the abyss. All militants stop what they're doing to marvel at the miracle they just witnessed, and the two forces join in unity behind Belden and against Kurnos. After burying the dead, they march to Istar. Kurnos is now terrified, and when Fistinellus appears again, he demands aid. The wizard grants him one last spell to murder Belden with, but he has to be right in front of him to use it. As the army arrives at Istar, only a small contingent is allowed inside. They meet Kurnos and demand he steps down, which ultimately he does, but he asks to be forgiven. As Belden goes through the ritual of forgiveness, Kurnos casts the spell at him, and Cathan jumps in front of it, hit by it, and dies in the process. Belden condemns Kurnos to the High Clarus Tower, where, in lore, Kurnos is playing Kaz against the High Clarus Yaris when the Cataclysm strikes, making a wonderful tie-in to this novel. But, later in the novel, the author reneges on that promise, on the connection, and instead has the demon, at Fistendanus' behest, murder Kurnos. Talk about a lost opportunity to maintain canon from back in the original Advanced Dungeons & Dragons DL modules. This was DL8 Dragons at War. It's right there. It's carried through all through all the uh, lore, all the way up to 3rd edition. It's not addressed in 5th, and it, Dragonlance wasn't existing in 4th. So from the very beginning to the very end of Dragonlance products, 
that myth was always there, even when this was written and released, and Chris Pearson still decided to change it. It didn't make the story better by changing it. In fact, would have made it infinitely better by leaving it. Because then everyone who knows those little secret tidbits of lore would find that connection and be stoked by it. It drives me crazy when they make these stupid decisions to completely change canon just so that they can, I don't know, put their finger in the lore of Dragonlance. I hate it so much. So, talk about a lost opportunity to maintain canon from back in the old 18 day days. Uh, Belden resurrects Cathan, and Fisdanalus tells Kurnos before he was killed that this was all his plan, and Kurnos was nothing but a pawn in it. Cathan is granted the position of the Knight of Salamnia and will be knighted with the late Lord Holger's squire, Lauren Soth. Another great connection. And as the coronation uh, begins to happen, he is instead knighted as the first of the new king priest's own knighthood, the Order of the Divine Hammer. I'm reminded of the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD of our own real-world history, where Emperor Constantine completely changed the way religion was accepted in the Roman Empire. Belden denies the balance and champions only his god Paladine. And it is very much like the Holy Roman Empire going from embracing local religions and cultures to whitewashing it all through Catholicism. It forced the world into ignorance, darkness, bigotry, and hate, all in the name of Christianity. And in Dragonlance, it forced the mountain down on the city. Now, I don't know if they were intentionally trying to draw those parallels, but they're so obvious to any human being that has ever studied history, you can't ignore them. The cataclysm was the equivalent of our Middle Ages in Dragonlance lore. The plagues, the ignorance, the bigotry and hate, it all stemmed from one Roman emperor deciding to have one religion over all the world. That's what you get. <laughs> That's what you get. All right, well, I'm glad we're out of that. So, this was a wonderful novel. <laughs> It did drag on a bit early on, but it picked up steam about halfway through for me. This author is fantastic. I've always loved this author, and I always will. The battles are a perfect mix between close-up atrocity and battlefield-wide chaos. I would highly recommend this novel to any Dragonlands fan, religion fan, and history buff. So, <laughs> let me know what you guys thought of it. So, as for the thoughts that were written in... Um, they argue that this is the best non-Weiss and Hickman Dragonlance book ever read, they ever read, due to the realism. Felt like uh, reading a Roman Empire novel. Yeah, that's, I definitely feel that as well. I do feel like it was intentional. The parallels are way too close to our real world to not see the immediate connection. And I know some people are going to be like, oh, you're just bashing on Christians. No, I'm telling you what Christians did. I'm not saying it's right or wrong. I'm just saying what happened. So you may not like it, but it's reality. So you have to deal with it, or you can just put your head in the sand like an ostrich. Hum or something. <laughs> um, it departs from D&D canon that Chronicles and other Dragonlance books are based on. I don't think so. Um, he's referencing in this uh, email 
about clerics being able to cure disease and stuff like that. Um, the clerics that were in those small areas, they were overwhelmed. And I don't think that they were capable of dealing with the massive scale and the severity of the spreading of the diseases. And that's why they couldn't deal with it. Uh, Beldina's was blessed by the gods, by Paladine. And so that's why he was able to go in and do what no one else could do. And also, Istar didn't even want to go to these far-off, recently-turned-barbarian settlements. Um, Istar saw them as rising up against their holy order, and so they, they didn't want to capitulate to those demands of these lesser provinces. And while I think that's short-sighted and ignorant, and so did many of the characters in the novel, I can, under, I can understand and see why it would be conversely seen as thus. Um, even if I disagree with it, I understand their perspective. And so I, I do find it interesting that that's seen as an error in canon when I think it's an error in judgment. Another one is uh, the person successfully portrayed Beldinus as likable, the, the author, yeah, I, I think it's really important in, because ultimately when we reference back to the king priest, we see an ignorant religi religious bigot. Like that's, that's all it is. And so how do you then make people understand that person and follow him? Healing their loved ones. You make him flawed, coming into his power, and ultimately helping people. That's exactly what you got with Hitler. He came into power telling people, gave people scapegoats, told them how great they were. People want to hear how good they are, how they deserve things that they don't have or that were taken from them through life. And if you have a scapegoat, all the better to propel that person to power. We've seen it through history in every country, including the United States recently, and so you can't pretend that it's not an effective way to create a monster because we've seen it all over the world throughout all of history, which is why it's so relatable and believable. Okay, so the character of Catherine Marsevrin was intriguing as a relatable, reluctant hero. I loved his, his trajectory. He started as fully religious, believed in Paladine with all of his heart until every one of his family members around him started dying and been infected by the plague. And his whole life of faith is now ultimately tested. He decides to turn away from it until he's shown that there are people who are willing to help him in the name of Paladine, through Belinda's, of course. And so it makes sense that he would hate this church. We've seen it in every world, in every religion, in every person. You know, you... If you're shunned or you feel you're shunned, you turn away from those people that you feel are shunning you or you feel that have wronged you. There's nothing wrong with it. And you have to understand that, you know, if you then are brought back into the fold, as it were, by having those miracles performed on your behalf, well, then, yeah, you would change your mind. Of course. This novel forces an audience to either ignore the real world implications or embrace them. You can't ignore that they are there, but you can disassociate from them if you want to. Again, I'm just acknowledging it. I'm not championing it. And there's a difference there, and it's important that, that people understand that. Uh, Fistinal Danilus was extremely enjoyable as the puppet master in this. I personally felt like it was a little bit like um, 
whitewashing what he was doing after the fact. I think he was really trying to set up Kurnos as, you know, his puppet. And if he ended up being in charge, then he just had a puppet. Once that failed, he was like, oh, no, I, I totally meant to do that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so it's just a convenient rewording of history, in my opinion. But in either case, it doesn't make me like Fist and Dantilus. It doesn't make me like Fist and Dantilus any less as a bad guy. In fact, I think it makes me like him more because any good bad guy should be able to pivot on a dime if his plan isn't working out. Um, and that's, in my interpretation, how it ended up happening. Let's see. Um, you love the titles given to the characters. This is Colonel's the Usurper. Yeah, I mean, that's... I, he references this as a being like a, a reference to Game of Thrones style of writing, but this has been since the old Arthurian legends. You know, you just, you get titles based on your actions. You preferred the hands-off approach by the gods. I don't think it was hands-off at all. I, I really think that the gods are got their fingers deep in this pudding. <laughs> like, like the governor of Florida, just like eating pudding out of a cup with their fingers. It, Paladine is knee deep in everything that happens in this. He tells Simeon the fourth to choose a new successor. He is conspicuously absent when Kurnos is asking anything, but he's always there telling Alyssa to go, to go look for the Lightbringer. He created the Lightbringer. He forces the Lightbringer out. Like, Paladine is behind this entire thing. So I, I totally saw that as a different approach. But I dig that that's your perspective on it. All right, so that is all I have for this. Um, let me know. Do you guys hate the fact that I call out real-world connections? Does it, I know it drives some people crazy when I bring up religious connections, but they're here for a reason, so I have to address them. Uh, that is going to do it for my review of Chosen by the Gods, or Chosen of the Gods, by Chris Pearson. Do you like the fanaticism of Belden? Can you imagine this being an HBO series? Because I definitely can. And finally, how do you feel about the real-world parallels? You can email me at info at dlsaga.com or comment below. I would like to take a moment and remind you to subscribe to this YouTube channel, click the bell to get notified about upcoming videos, and click the like button. This all goes to help other Dragonlance fans learn about this channel and this content. And this channel is all about celebrating the wonderful world of the Dragonlance saga. And I thank you for joining the celebration. Once again, I'm Adam with Dragonlance Saga. Until next time, Slanjava.